This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 6, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Elizabeth Panisi talks about measuring personality in animals. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on retiring whales. A few weeks ago, SeaWorld announced that they would no longer breed or collect captive killer whales. Basically, they'll keep the orcas until they die and no additional whales will be brought in. Last time we talked about this, we mentioned the idea of an orca sanctuary, but just in passing, now that idea may be more real than we knew at the time. Who's involved in trying to make this a reality? Well, there's a few groups that have been pushing for an orca sanctuary, and this would sort of be like a cordoned off cove. You might rope off with a net or even a group of islands where you might string some netting between them to sort of keep the orcas inside. There would be a lot of other stuff too. There would be facilities for trainers and veterinarians and staff and security and public education center. These could be really complicated things. These have been talked about in the past. What's sort of new here is, first of all, there's a new organization on the horizon called the Whale Sanctuary Project, which is composed of a few dozen scientists, engineers, lawmakers, things like that. And also that there's actually sort of detailed plans starting to come out about just exactly what these things would look like, how much they would cost, and maybe even potentially where they would be. What are some of those proposals for location? The location is is a bit tricky because, first of all, you have to pick water that's cold enough for an orca, and they, they tend to live in pretty cold waters. But you also have to find a place that can be roped off. So you're talking about a cove or a small group of islands. And you've got to find a place that you can either buy or get the government to lease to you. And so the Whale Sanctuary Project is actually looking along both the east and west coasts of North America, but there have been sanctuaries proposed for other places. And in fact, the only sanctuary that existed before now was built for a whale named Keiko, who was the inspiration and sometimes star of the Free Willy movies, who actually lived in a small netted off cove in Iceland for about four years. That was expensive. That's what I took away from your story. And these proposed sanctuaries would probably be pretty expensive. Can you talk about costs and where that money might come from? Yeah, these things can get really expensive um, because not only you're talking about 
transporting a whale, which has to, these whales have to be flown in military aircraft. And it's also not just sort of roping off a cove or a series of islands. It's the maintenance. These whales can eat hundreds of fish a day. They need regular medical care. And most people don't believe, especially for the whales that were born in captivity, that they can ever make their way in the wild. So you're talking about these sanctuaries holding on to these whales for potentially decades. And Keiko himself was costing about $3 million a year. And the Whale Sanctuary Project is estimating that sanctuaries could cost anywhere from tens of millions to up to $200 million to create and maintain. And where might that money come from? Well, that's a great question. Not only do these organizations have to come up with the plans for these sanctuaries and somehow convince SeaWorld and all other places too. Actually, SeaWorld has about 29 orcas, but there's 27 more elsewhere in the world that are at theme parks and places like that. So these organizations not only have to convince these places to release their animals, but they have to figure out where the money is going to come from. And so far, they're thinking about from the public, from donation campaigns, but also from very wealthy donors and potentially even from SeaWorld itself, if it was willing to kick in any money for these things. So we've already kind of talked about the complications just inherent in this project, but there are also researchers and other people who are interested in marine animals that are objecting to this for a lot of different reasons. Can you talk about some of those? Aside from the logistical hurdles, there's this idea of putting these giant whales in a place where whales don't typically live. So you can imagine putting a whale in a cove, and that cove has never seen a whale before. So what's going to be the impact of the whale on that environment? What's that going to do to wildlife? What's all that whale poop going to do to the environment? But also vice versa. You're talking about whales that sometimes have lived their entire lives in these sterile concrete tanks, and now you're putting them into essentially what's the open ocean, even though it's roped off. So they're going to be encountering diseases they've never encountered before, things like ship noise, things like pollution, and SeaWorld, but also others have said this could be very dangerous for the whales. Hmm. What about the research into whales that gets done at SeaWorld and other facilities? Would that continue in, in a sanctuary like this? Well, that's something that's also debatable because some scientists have said, well, there's some great things we could do in sanctuaries that we can't do in captivity because the captive environment's not very natural. So it's hard to look at things like how whales communicate or how deep they dive because they're in these fairly shallow tanks that could be much easier done in a sanctuary-like environment. But on the other hand, the sanctuary creates a lot of variables that you don't have in captivity, things like ship noise, things like the whales sort of eating whatever they want. So there are pluses and minuses of conducting research in sanctuaries. Would they put all the whales together? Well, that's a great question. I don't think there's anybody who's proposing a sanctuary that's going to hold 56 whales. In fact, there's another group called the Orca Network that's proposed a sanctuary just for a single whale, a whale named Alita that lives in an aquarium in Florida. But the whale sanctuary is thinking about having up to multiple whales per sanctuary. Building a sanctuary for one whale, I mean, how is that? Is that, I hate to be a little cutthroat here, but cost effective? Well, right. I mean, it depends what your ultimate goal is. If your ultimate goal is just to get these whales out of captivity, then the sanctuary model makes sense. And then some people are angry that you could be talking about spending potentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on creating sanctuaries for a handful of whales when you can spend that money instead on whales and potentially dolphins in the wild that are currently threatened. Next up, we have a story on making twins. Twins run in the family, but only one kind. Dizygotic, or as in two egg twins, or fraternal twins. And twins are 
on the rise in the United States. <laughs> I, this number is shocking. Between 1980 and 2011, twin births have risen by 76%. And Dave, you're proud to be one of those <laughs> parents of twins, I bet. Yes. Um, but actually, most of the rise in twins that we've seen can be safely put down to in vitro fertilization becoming more and more common. And also older mothers. Older uh, mothers, right. Which are, who are more likely to release a couple of eggs versus one. Right. And, but getting back to the inherited predilection for twins, until now the genes involved have not been identified. And this is kind of surprising because twin studies are the deal. They're the standard. There are so many twin studies out there, but they didn't actually study why we have twins so much. Uh, which one of the many, many data sets for twins was used in this study, Dave? <laughs> well, they actually used a few data sets from the Netherlands, from Australia, and Minnesota. And in this study, the researchers looked at 2,000 mothers of fraternal twins that were in these data sets, and they really scanned down to their DNA. And then what they were looking for is they were looking at something called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs. And SNPs are sort of these small stretches of DNA that can vary from person to person, but they can have a large impact. What they found was that there are two SNPs or polymorphisms that are strongly associated with having fraternal twins. And it's incredibly more common if you have these changes in your base pairs, right? Yeah. If you just have one copy of each of these SNPs, then a mother's chances of having fraternal twins increases by 29%. What did they learn about the mechanism? We know there are these bases, but what do they actually link up with in the genes? Well, one of these SNPs is near a gene called FSHB, which is involved in the production of a hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone. And what we know about these hormones is if the levels stay too high for too long, the ovaries release multiple eggs. So this particular change makes a lot of sense. But what about the other one? Are you saying not so much? Well, it doesn't make as much sense, although it still makes some sense because it's near a gene called SMAD3. And this gene, the researchers think, although they don't have a lot of information, they think it changes how the ovaries respond to FSH. And that actually seems to sort of pair nicely with the story because what it suggests is that both of these changes really change what's happening with the ovaries and the eggs. And obviously both of those things are going to play a big role in how many eggs you produce. This actually circles back to what I was talking about before about in vitro fertilization being linked with twins. They think that this second gene might be able to tell them something about the success of in vitro fertilization, right? Right, because some of the success of IVF really relates to how well the ovaries respond to the hormones that doctors are giving women to help them conceive. And so this gene actually may help us understand how IVF works and maybe even find ways to improve it. Or ways to help women who want to conceive twins conceive twins. Exactly. Lastly, we have a story on the future of clinical CRISPR. Gene therapy has been on a bumpy path. Uh, once researchers began linking genes and disease, it seemed like, okay, now we have the cures because we know the genes. But Progress on workable gene transfer-based treatments has been slow. Now, here comes CRISPR, everybody's favorite gene editing technique, and it offers this incredible precision. But the question is, is CRISPR going to just leap in and give genetic treatments a big boost? Dave, can you start us off with just a quick CRISPR primer? How is it different 
than old-fashioned, I guess we could say at this point, gene transfer approaches. Right. Well, when we think of traditional gene therapy, we're talking about taking a gene, perhaps a gene that somebody doesn't have or somebody has a big mutation in, and taking a brand new version of that gene and getting it into the body, usually via a virus. So it's a sort of very blunt approach. What's nice about CRISPR is it's a much more sort of surgical approach because you can actually theoretically put CRISPR in a cell and it can make little edits to a gene, maybe delete little parts that are problematic, or potentially even take pieces out and put other pieces in. So it's seen as a much more sort of specific way, potentially a safer way of changing a person's genes than traditional gene therapy. Well, what has CRISPR been used for so far in terms of therapies? Well, it's been used successfully to treat a couple of diseases, at least in animals, one uh, liver disease and another and also muscular dystrophy. And there's a lot more work being done right now. So there's a lot of enthusiasm about this at the moment. What are some of the hurdles here? I mean, they're not going right into clinical trials with CRISPR at this point. Right. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons we ran this item is because there's so much hype around CRISPR and we wanted to take a step back and say, well, how much of this is justified? And one of the problems with CRISPR is that there's still really no good way to get it working in a, an actual human body. What researchers have done so far is to take individual cells out of a body, then do CRISPR on those cells, and then try to put those cells back in. As you can imagine, that's not a very efficient technique, and that's not ideally what we would want for sort of the CRISPR therapies of the future. CRISPR is really just starting out as an editing technique for genes. Meanwhile, the gene transfer techniques are really starting to see some successes. Are we too far down the road? Are we already going to just bypass CRISPR and charge ahead with gene transfer? Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Sarah, you know, traditional gene therapy has had a very bumpy road, but it has been seeing some successes recently. There have been some successes in treating a form of blindness in children, also some other congenital diseases. And these therapies are so far along and seem to be working so well, it doesn't really make sense to start from scratch with CRISPR. What you'd want to use CRISPR for is the things that traditional gene therapy just hasn't been effective with so far. One of the big things that CRISPR has to offer is this editing. So not just cutting out a gene or adding a gene in, but actually making really small changes. But that's the aspect of it that's furthest away from the clinic. Can you talk about why? First of all, there's a safety issue. I mean, you know, even though CRISPR is supposed to be a lot more precise, when you put something in a cell that's starting to cut up DNA, what if it cuts up the wrong DNA? You know, could that lead to cancer? Could that uh, cause other problems? And that's a hurdle that researchers are still trying to get over. Another thing that you really need for CRISPR to be effective, especially if you're talking about not just deleting pieces of DNA, but adding new DNA in, is that the cell has to be dividing because some of the mechanisms that a cell uses to divide are critical for CRISPR working in these processes. And most of the cells in our body are not dividing. So that's another hurdle for making this effective in people right now. This sounds kind of negative, but you're not really saying that CRISPR has just missed the boat, right? I doubt it. I mean, there's so much hype around it, but also there's just so much research being done on it right now. The research has just really exploded. And so I think researchers are probably going to find a way around a lot of these issues they're having with CRISPR so far. So the bottom line here is that CRISPR remains a very promising and powerful technique. Just don't expect to see it in your doctor's office anytime soon. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we got an item about robot surgeons and how they're finally coming into their own with a nice video as well. Also a story about sperm wars in bats. 
For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about when we could see an actual vaccine against the Zika virus. Also a story about a controversial trial to develop an anti-pedophilia drug and why it's having trouble securing funding. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. What if you could help combat climate change and make double-digit returns at the same time? Now you can with Wonder Capital, the leading online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the United States. In fact, Wonder won the 2014 U.S. Department of Energy's SunShot Challenge. Your investment with Wonder goes directly to helping businesses install photovoltaic solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive steady monthly cash flows in the form of interest payments. And best of all, Wonder doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Learn how you can begin earning up to 11% returns at wondercapital.com science. That's Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. To me, and probably most pet owners out there, it seems so obvious that our cats, dogs, birds, our pets, what have you, have a personality. But science has been slow to accept the idea that any animal has a personality. I spoke with Elizabeth Panisi about the latest in this field of research, beginning with why it's been such a slow start. Biologists, especially when they were looking at animal behavior, would look for how the animal behavior was the same. And so if they saw individuals that didn't run away the way they thought they should run away, say, if you frightened them, they considered that noise and they just ignored them. And then there was a second problem in that, you know, biologists want to be very careful not to sort of see their subjects the way we see humans. And so to think about personalities in their subjects was just a taboo. The researchers who are studying personalities sort of walk a very fine line. They don't want people to start thinking about animal personalities in the same way that we think about our own personalities, because we think about personalities as sort of what our individual's quirks are, and it's not really thought about that way in the sense of people who study animal personalities. They look for very standardized things and try and keep it strictly on a behavioral, not emotional level. So now this research is really opening up, and one of the things they do is they define the term personality just for how it's used in animal research. How do they use the term? When they use the term, they're talking about an individual having a very consistent trait, say boldness that's the same across time and space. A bold fish, for example, is one that wouldn't necessarily run away if it saw a predator. So it's bold in the defiant way, but it's also bold in the way that it would very aggressively go after prey. The way they figure this out is they do standardized tests. For the fish, what they would do is put the fish in a tank 
and stick a fake bird beak into the tank and see what the fish did. And they know it's a personality trait because every time they stick the bird beak in, the fish does the same thing. It runs away or it doesn't run away. And that's the consistency. There are personality skeptics out there. These are scientists, researchers that aren't so sure that animal personality is an important thing. What kind of evidence are they waiting for? What would it take to convince them not only that animals have personality, but that it's meaningful? Well, I think some of the studies that are going on now are getting to that point. I mean, one of the big steps was the development of these standardized tests so that you could really test for what the personality of an organism was. But now they've gone further. So, for example, there's a lot of work done on great tits, which are these common songbirds in Europe and Asia. They tend to sort of stick around. And so there's some long-term study sites in England and Germany and the Netherlands. And as part of the research, biologists will go in and take the tit and put it in a room and see how bold it is by looking at how eager or readily it explores that new environment. And then they tag that great tit and follow it around. And by doing this, they've learned, for example, that the bold ones tend to be very um, kind of fly-by-night. They tend to hop around a lot. They have a lot of not very close birds that they associate with. They explore a lot of new territory and looking for food items, whereas the ones that tend to stay put or not explore those chambers very much, they tend to follow routines. They tend to have fewer associates, but they tend to be kind of close to those associates. It's kind of like they have tight-knit groups, and those affect how well those birds do in the long run. So when there's not a very high density of birds in a woodlot, for example, the aggressive ones do great. You know, they can outcompete anybody for food. But when the bird density gets too high, it turns out they're so aggressive with so many other birds that they're fighting all the time. And so it's the ones that tend to be a little bit more docile, a little meeker, that do better. Right. So there's this interaction between personality and environment and survival. So it does have a much bigger impact than just assigning personality types to an animal. That's right. One of the things I thought was really interesting was how personality can actually affect speciation. Can you talk about that? Personality and speciation is more speculative at this point. And the idea is, is if personality affects what you do, how much you eat, where you hang out, then it can cause sort of the bold ones to not be in the same place as the less bold ones. And that differentiation, that segregation, is one of the things that can lead to sort of set you on the path to speciation because then, say, the meek ones are in the shadows a lot, say a meek fish, then it will develop maybe coloration patterns that are more suited for being in the shadows, maybe develop behaviors that are more suited to being in the shadows, whereas a bold fish in another environment, say the more open environment, will develop other characteristics. And those differences can eventually lead to different mating preferences, and different mating preferences lead to one group not associating with the other, and that's how they think speciation gets started. 
But there are other pressures that are keeping different personality types in the same species, in the same animal, right? That's right. That's right. One of the earliest cases documented about personality was with salamanders. And the researcher was puzzled because he noticed that in a stream, some salamanders would like run away when they saw a fish that might eat them and other salamanders wouldn't. And that seemed to make no sense because you would think those who don't run away would get eaten. But it turned out that Sometimes in the stream you get these isolated pools when the river or the stream is low. And in those isolated pools, those very aggressive salamanders are able to catch food faster, grow faster, and complete their life cycle in time before the pools rise out. So you have the salamanders that are adapted to sort of the stream and pools where there are predatory fish because they hide. And then you have the salamanders that are adapted to pools that dry up. And so both personalities are beneficial. Not only can individual animals have personalities, but one example you talk about is the story of a colony with a personality. How does that work? So yes, this is all about social spiders. Researchers have discovered that social spiders are either bold or not bold, and that in a given colony, there will be a certain mixture of bold ones to call them meek ones, and that the mixture makes an important difference. So if you have a colony that lives where there's a lot of prey and a lot of food, that colony tends to attract outside spiders that want to steal the food that's caught by this big social web. So you need a lot of bold individuals to keep those interlopers away. But if you have a colony in a place where there's not a lot of food, it's better for the colony to have more of the docile individuals because if they're, if there's too many bold individuals, they tend to fight with each other and they don't share the food as well as the meek individuals. The more that we talk about animal personality, shyness, boldness, meekness, the more I wonder about human personality. Do you think that this research into what's going on with animals will eventually feed back on how we understand human personality? Well, I think it can feed back in a couple of ways. One is that there is obviously at least a little genetic basis for why personalities are the way they are. And through studies of stickleback fish or even great tits, we can begin to get at that genetics a little bit easier than we can get at the genetics in humans. And if we find a gene that, say, influences shyness in sticklebacks, we can look in humans to see if that gene and how it varies is the same in us. The other aspect is is we really would like to understand how personalities evolved and why they evolved. And by looking at other species, we can get a handle on that. Thanks for talking with me, Liz. Well, thanks for having me. Elizabeth Panisi is a staff writer for Science. You can read her story on bold birds and shy spiders in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.